welcome to Script Bits, a show for writers, film buffs, and everyone in between. Each episode, we take a closer look at one section of a great screenplay and find out what it can teach us about storytelling. This week, we'll be checking out the muscular and entertaining screenplay for Terminator 2, Judgment Day. I'm Bruff Hansen, and this is Script Bits. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Script Bits. I hope you are continuing to stay safe and sane in these ever-changing times. Your humble narrator, to quote Clockwork Orange, has been writing and producing his own movies these last few months. I am very excited about these short films, which will hopefully be available soon. As I continue down this indie filmmaking path, I will try to share interesting bits as my schedule allows. I do love this work, and I hope you're getting as much from these episodes as I am creating them. Onward. You know the dealio. First, I'm going to give you some background about the script bit for the day, read the section out loud, and then talk about some of the lessons it has to share. Bust out that popcorn, because today we're going to take in a bit from one of the greatest action films of all time, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. The screenplay is by James Cameron, who also directed it, and William Wisher. Today's bit begins at scene 47 of the final shooting script, with the location Exterior Flood Control Channel. Here's some background to this bit for context. Skynet, the name of the intelligent machines that rule the world in the future, have sent a robot called the T-1000 back in time to kill a kid named John Connor, before he can grow up to become the leader of the human opposition in their time. The adult John Connor, the John Connor of the future, reprograms one of Skynet's robots, a model called the Terminator, to also go back in time and save his childhood self. We're dropping into the last part of a long action sequence. John Connor is on a dirt bike, fleeing from the T-1000, the robot is pursuing John in a big rig tow truck through the streets of L.A. Meanwhile, the Terminator is catching up to the chase in a Harley-Davidson motorcycle so that he can rescue John and save his life. All right, let's begin. Exterior, flood control channel. John slides his bike down the service ramp faster than he's ever done it before. He races along the bottom of the canal, turning into a narrower tributary which has vertical sides. He looks back, no sign of pursuit. Suddenly, he sees the sun blocked out by a great shadow. The Kenworth tow truck, big as a house, all chrome and roaring diesel engine, crashes through the fence and launches itself right into the center of the canal. It crashes down, 15 feet to the ground, going about 60 hits an angle and tears into the concrete wall with a hideous grinding of metal. It ricochets back and forth between the walls, then, bellowing like a gunshot stegosaurus, it just keeps on plowing forward, gathering speed. John looks back and sees this wall of metal almost filling the narrow concrete canal, and he milks every last bit of throttle the little bike has. The Kenworth is all muscle, tearing along the canal like a train in a tunnel. Its big tires send up huge sheets of muddy spray, backlit in the setting sun. It looks like some kind of demon, 
and it's gaining. Above them, on the service road running parallel, Terminator is fighting to overtake them. He looks down and sees John with the tow truck from hell catching up to him. It is only about 20 feet behind him and still gaining. Angle in the canal, looking back past a desperate John, at the wall of metal filling frame behind him. Above, Terminator cuts the bike suddenly hard to the left, leaving the road. Hitting an earth embankment just right, he jumps the bike into the air like Steve McQueen in The Great Escape and vaults the fence bordering the canal. It slams down at the edge of the canal and tears along, inches from the drop-off on a dirt path, accelerating past the truck in the canal below. John hits some water and slews momentarily, losing speed. The massive push plate on the front of the truck slams into his back fender. Panicked, he pulls a little ahead. All this is happening at about 60 miles an hour, top speed for the little dirt bike. Slow motion as Terminator jumps the bike again. This time, the 700-pound Harley sails out into space and drops into the canal. It arcs down between the truck and John, hitting on its wheels. It bottoms out, an explosion of sparks under the frame. Only the ultra-fast reflexes of a machine could keep the bike upright. Terminator fights for control. He guns the throttle, and the powerful bike roars up beside John's tiny Honda. Terminator sweeps the kid off his machine with one arm and swings him onto the Harley in front of him. John's Honda weaves and falls, smashing instantly under thundering tires. The Harley roars ahead. It hits 80. Ahead is an overpass, and supporting it is an abutment which bisects the canal into two channels. The Harley thunders into one channel, which is essentially a short tunnel. The truck can't fit on either side. Neither can it stop at that speed. Tires locked, it slides on the muddy concrete and piles into the concrete abutment at 70. Terminator and John emerge from the tunnel, looking back to see a fireball blasting through behind them as the truck's side tanks explode. The Terminator stops the Harley. John peers around his body to see the destruction. A burning wheel wobbles out of the tunnel and flops in the mud. Terminator revs the bike and they roar away, down the canal, disappearing around a bend. Angle on the fire as a column of black smoke rises from the overpass. Smoke boils from the tunnel as well, and inside it is a solid wall of flame. A figure appears in the fire. Just an outline, walking slowly, calmly. The figure emerges from the flames. It is human-shaped, but far from human. A smooth chrome man. Not a servo mechanism like Terminator is underneath, with its complex hydraulics and cables. This thing is featureless. Liquid chrome surface, bending seamlessly at knees and elbows as it walks. It reminds us of Mercury. A Mercury man. Its face is simple, unformed. Unruffled by thousand-degree heat, it walks toward us. With each step, detail returns. First the shape and lines of its clothing emerge from the liquid chrome surface, then finer details, buttons, facial features, ears. But it's still all chrome. With its last step, the color returns to everything. 
It is the cop again. Handsome young face, blonde hair, mustache, icy eyes. It stops and looks around. It is a perfect chameleon, a liquid metal robot, a killing machine with the ultimate skills of mimicry for infiltration of human society. This screenplay makes a strong argument for knowing your writing fundamentals. If any of you have ever played Little League baseball or softball, you may have heard a coach talk about the importance of fundamentals. How do you stand in the field? How do you scoop up a ball? What's your batting stance? How's your swing? The point is that players should not concern themselves with glitzy maneuvers like triple plays or grand slams, but focus on the commonplace, nuts-and-bolts skills that will prepare them to make big plays when the time comes. This episode may be most helpful to novice writers, but the topics we're going to cover should serve as useful reminders to veterans as well. We're going to touch on the fundamentals of clear, rich writing. Strong verbs, figurative language, and close attention to detail. Let's reread the first part of this bit and take a closer look at its language. Exterior flood control channel. John slides his bike down the service ramp faster than he's ever done it before. He races along the bottom of the canal, turning into a narrower tributary which has vertical sides. He looks back, no sign of pursuit. Suddenly, he sees the sun blocked out by a great shadow. The Kenworth tow truck, big as a house, all chrome and roaring diesel engine, crashes through the fence and launches itself right into the center of the canal. It crashes down 15 feet to the ground, going about 60, hits an angle, and tears into the concrete wall with a hideous grinding of metal. It ricochets back and forth between the walls, then, bellowing like a gunshot stegosaurus, it just keeps on plowing forward, gathering speed. John looks back and sees this wall of metal almost filling the narrow concrete canal, and he milks every last bit of throttle the little bike has. The Kenworth is all muscle, tearing along the canal like a train in a tunnel. Its big tires send up huge sheets of muddy spray, backlit in the setting sun. It looks like some kind of demon, and it's gaining. Above them, on the service road running parallel, Terminator is fighting to overtake them. He looks down and sees John with the tow truck from hell catching up to him. It is only about 20 feet behind him and still gaining. Angle on the canal, looking back past a desperate John at the wall of metal filling frame behind him. What makes this section positively pop off the page? Anyone who has seen this movie would have to agree that this script successfully forges the visceral experience of what the film ultimately became. How did the writers pull this off? Let's start with verb choice. The verbs they choose practically burn through the page. In this section, John never simply drives his motorcycle, but slides it down the service ramp and races along the canal. They write that he milks every last bit of throttle from the little bike. And what about the T-1000's massive tow truck? It doesn't do much driving either. 
Instead, it crashes through the fence and launches itself into the canal, where it tears into the concrete wall and ricochets back and forth as it plows forward and gathers speed. These vehicles don't move. They slice through space with specific and colorful verbs. At some point in your education, a well-meaning English teacher may have told you to avoid using a thesaurus, and those teachers aren't wrong. Writing that arbitrarily replaces five-cent words with five-dollar words comes across as not only pretentious, but heavy and opaque. But, properly used, a thesaurus can be your friend. Search your script, find its boring verbs, destroy them, and use a thesaurus to discover a more accurate, surprising, specific, or evocative verb. And don't limit yourself to synonyms that make perfect sense in context. Verbs employed outside their typical meaning can infuse a moment with a novel and unexpected energy. For example, Joseph Conrad once described a character hastily climbing a rope by writing that the man swarmed up the rope. Take a good, honest look at your script. Circle all the conventional verbs weighing it down. Grind into what you're actually trying to say and find the action verbs that will make your screenplay shine. If you do nothing but up your verb game, your writing will improve incredibly. Strong verbs aren't the only words that jump off the page of this bit. Let's talk about its figurative language. It's common to think of screenplays as quote-unquote visual stories. This is largely true, but there are important caveats. Simply describing a picture does not necessarily give us a sense of what we're supposed to experience when we see it. That is, it's dramatic and emotional essence. It's metaphysical dimensions, if you will. You have to take responsibility for conveying the entirety of the people, places, and things in your script beyond how they appear on their face. There are hundreds of known rhetorical devices that expand language beyond the literal world, but if you can master the three most important, you will write like a true pro. They are metaphor, simile, and a device known as a belonging trope. You may already be familiar with the first two, metaphor and simile. A metaphor is when an object is figuratively described with language that is not literally applicable to what it is. When you say that a politician has blood on his hands, or that your coworker is buried in paperwork, you're using metaphors. A simile is the same idea, except that it uses figurative imagery to make a comparison between the real-world object and something else. For example, when you say that a sprinter ran like a bat out of hell, or that your enemy's stare is cold as ice, you're using similes. You can usually differentiate a simile from a metaphor, because a simile will include either the word like or as. The third device that's often overlooked, yet very effective in screenwriting, is called a belonging trope. This device is technically split into two subtly different concepts called synecdoche and metonymy, 
but don't worry too much about the nomenclature or knowing the difference. The important point is that a belonging trope uses a certain detail of a subject, or its inclusion in a particular group, to give us a sense of what it is. For example, a red-headed person with the nickname Red is a belonging trope. It uses a prominent detail about that person to describe her as a whole. If you swear loyalty to the crown, you're not declaring fealty to the golden object that sits atop the queen's head, but to the queen herself. The crown belongs to the queen, so to speak, so we can use it as an image that conveys the entirety of her position and office. The White House is a belonging trope as well, because it replaces a whole complex of personnel, power, dynamics, and politics with a single symbolic phrase. You can sometimes spot a belonging trope when you see the word all involved, as in, I'm all ears. Cameron and Wisher liberally use and even combine all three devices to give the audience a robust vibe for this story and how it should ultimately feel in movie form. The T-1000's tow truck is big as a house, simile. They say that it's all chrome and roaring diesel engine, belonging trope, and bellows like a gunshot stegosaurus, simile and metaphor. They write that the truck is all muscle, metaphor, that it tears through the canal like a train in a tunnel, simile, and that it looks like some kind of demon, metaphor. Later, it's the tow truck from hell, metaphor, and as the vehicle gets closer to John, he experiences it as a wall of metal, metaphor, sort of belonging trope. In the land of figurative language, the tow truck is anything but a tow truck. It's a living, breathing predator, a force of industrial chaos wreaking havoc on our desperate John. Learning these devices may seem unnecessarily academic. After all, many of us with the inclination to write use figurative language naturally. However, knowing how these tropes work and how to spot them will open up your imagination to whole new realms of descriptive possibility. Spice up your verbs and supercharge your figurative language. Make your screenplay a feast of hearty actions and vivid imagery. You'll thank me later. Let's go on to the next section of this bit. Above, the Terminator cuts the bike suddenly hard to the left, leaving the road. Hitting an earth embankment just right, he jumps the bike into the air like Steve McQueen in The Great Escape and vaults the fence bordering the canal. It slams down at the edge of the canal and tears along, inches from the drop-off on a dirt path, accelerating past the truck in the canal below. John hits some water and slews momentarily, losing speed. The massive push plate on the front of the truck slams into his back fender. Panicked, he pulls a little ahead. All this is happening at about 60 miles an hour, top speed for the little dirt bike. Slow motion as Terminator jumps the bike again. This time, the 700-pound Harley sails out into space and drops into the canal. It arcs down between the truck and John, hitting on its wheels. 
It bottoms out, an explosion of sparks under the frame. Only the ultra-fast reflexes of a machine could keep the bike upright. Terminator fights for control. He guns the throttle, and the powerful bike roars up beside John's tiny Honda. Terminator sweeps the kid off his machine with one arm and swings him onto the Harley in front of him. John's Honda weaves and falls, smashing instantly under thundering tires. The Harley roars ahead. It hits 80. Ahead is an overpass, and supporting it is an abutment, which bisects the canal into two channels. The Harley thunders into one channel, which is essentially a short tunnel. The truck can't fit on either side. Neither can it stop, at this speed. Tires locked, it slides on the muddy concrete and piles into the concrete abutment at 70. Terminator and John emerge from the tunnel, looking back to see a fireball blasting through behind them as the truck's side tanks explode. Terminator stops the Harley. John peers around his body to see the destruction. A burning wheel wobbles out of the tunnel and flops in the mud. Terminator revs the bike and they roar away, down the canal, disappearing around a bend. Another thing I admire about this script is the author's grasp of the technical details of their world. And when I say technical, I mean just that. They have a comprehensive knowledge of the design and materials of their settings and technology. Having a figurative vocabulary is important, but equally important is maintaining a firm grip on language from the other side of the spectrum, the literal world. Before you float off into an abstract cloudscape of linguistic freedom, metaphor, by the way, let's review some fantastic examples of this bit's assiduous attention to technical detail. The truck doesn't just run into John, but its massive pushplate slams into John's fender. The authors tell us that the chase is happening at 60 miles per hour, and take care to note that 60 is the dirt bike's top speed. When the Terminator flies into the air and lands in the dry canal, he's not on a generic motorcycle, but a 700-pound Harley, a bike so heavy that it bottoms out when it lands. Then it catches up to the very different and differently branded bike, John's Honda. Terminator yanks John from his bike, and the two head toward an overpass, which the writers describe as an abutment which bisects the canal into two channels. They make it through the tunnel, but the T-1000's Kenmore tow truck, again, a specific make, can't fit. It piles into the tunnel, great verb by the way, and blows up in a very specific way when its side tanks explode. You'll find this level of detail throughout the screenplay. Structures, vehicles, weapons, all of these items have specifications and component parts that give them as much character as the figurative language that fills out their energy. If you really want to suspend a reader's disbelief, maintain a granular knowledge of your settings and objects, architecture, and specs. I want to add one qualifier about technical and other details. It's easy to bog down a script with too much description. 
We only need what's necessary to give us an idea of what we're seeing. How do you decide what details are necessary? You wait until the detail is relevant to the action. For example, the authors don't randomly tell us that a Harley Davidson weighs 700 pounds. They wait until that aspect of the bike will be pertinent and impactful. E.g., when the gargantuan vehicle sails out into space and drops 15 feet into a canal where, because of its weight, it bottoms out, causing an explosion of parts under the frame. Here, its weight means something. It tells us just how fast that hulking bike must be going to actually lift into the air and how much damage it will inflict on itself when it lands. Technical details can pack just as much of an emotional punch as figurative language. Know how and when to use both, and your screenplay will read like a dream. Simile. Quick tip. To find out about the inner workings of some object, one trick I find useful is to do an internet search for anatomy of a blank. For example, anatomy of a dirt bike. This will lead to graphics, blueprints, and other documents that visually map the object's parts and give the proper term to describe each. Before I sign off today, I'm going to read the last part of this bit. I want you to listen and keep in mind everything we've discussed. Verb choice, figurative language, and technical detail, and notice how they synthesize into the birth of a truly formidable antagonist. Angle on the fire as a column of black smoke rises from the overpass. Smoke boils from the tunnel as well, and inside it is a solid wall of flame. A figure appears in the fire, just an outline, walking slowly, calmly. The figure emerges from the flames. It is human-shaped, but far from human, a smooth chrome man, not a servo mechanism like Terminator is underneath, with its complex hydraulics and cables. This thing is a featureless, liquid chrome surface, bending seamlessly at knees and elbows as it walks. It reminds us of Mercury, a Mercury man. Its face is simple, unformed. Unruffled by thousand-degree heat, it walks toward us. With each step, detail returns. First, the shape and lines of its clothing emerge from the liquid chrome surface. Then finer details, buttons, facial features, ears. But it's still all chrome. With its last step, the color returns to everything. It is a cop again. Handsome young face, blonde hair, mustache, icy eyes. It stops and looks around. It is a perfect chameleon, a liquid metal robot, a killing machine with the ultimate skill of mimicry for infiltration of human society. Thank you for listening to this episode of Script Bits. And thank you as always to Graham Webster for composing our music. For updates and the latest episodes, please follow us on Twitter at Script Bits Show 
or find our website, scriptbitspodcast.com. And you can always reach out to me personally at bruff at scriptbitspodcast.com. That's B-R-O-U-G-H at scriptbitspodcast.com. Hit me up with your thoughts on this episode or anything else. My name is Bruff Hansen, and this is Script Bits. Bits.